0: So turning your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 8 this evening, as we continue to look at the life and the reign of Solomon, I'd like to this evening look at chapters 8 and 9 together, Lord willing, maybe moving a little bit more quickly through chapter 8 and then giving a little bit more of our attention to chapter 9. Solomon has now come to the end of his building project of the temple, he's dedicated uh, the house of God. The Lord's uh, shown his glory and his power through that process, confirming what they had done. And now as we come into chapter 8, we sort of get a little bit more of Solomon uh, establishing the government, continuing to build the nation, working on some of the infrastructure of his kingdom and some of the indication of really how extravagant the reign of Solomon was as far as the wealth and Uh, Just the extravagance that existed under King Solomon's reign in the time when he was ruling over Israel. It tells us in verse 1 of chapter 8 that it came to pass at the end of, notice, 20 years when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. Now, We have been told multiple times that it took about seven years to build the house of the Lord, which indicates that Solomon's building projects of his own palace, and we'll see there were some secondary houses that he had as well, whether it was kind of like a summer house. We also see in this chapter that at least one of his wives, if not others, uh, had their own residences, that he built them properties and locations to live in as well. So quite extensive were his building projects. Uh, we see it took seven years again to build the house of God, that glorious temple that we've looked at together in recent chapters, but 20 years in total to build the Lord's house and his own palaces. So, again, does that indicate that Solomon spent seven years building God's house and then 13 years building his own palace and structures well if that were the case that would probably just make him honestly like most human beings uh, because we <laughs> we all kind of tend to give it seems like though it should be the opposite probably about twice as much attention to our own lives and material possessions and our own households and all these kind of things usually than we really do to the house of God and that's kind of a, a sad testament but if we were all to be honest rather than false Solomon uh, there's kind of a, an illustration there in some ways really of what we all can have a tendency to do. Certainly that should be inverted, but come comes to the end of about a 20-year period. And we kind of get a little bit of a record here of just some of the details of what happened during those two decades. It says, verse 2, that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them and he settled the children of Israel there. So what we're going to see in this chapter is kind of like Solomon building up the infrastructure of the nation of Israel, and really expanding the kingdom during this time. Lots of building projects. You'll notice the repetitive reference to he built, he built, he built. And here, verse 2, gives us this little reference to how he built, or your your uh, uh, translation may say rebuilt, the particular cities uh, that he would kind of almost, you might say, reclaimed from Hiram. If you remember, again, I know it's going a ways back, In 1 Kings, I believe it's chapter 9 there, as the result of kind of this contractual relationship and political alliance between Solomon and King Hiram, it says that Solomon gave a multitude of cities to Hiram, and Hiram came and looked at these different locations there in the Galilee region, and when he looked at them, he called them Kabul, I believe it's C-A-B-U-L, if the word serves me in my memory correct, And the idea there of Kabul literally means is that when he looked at these locations and cities given to him from Solomon, he said, these are good for nothing. These are worthless. They have no value. They're just rubbish. They're good for nothing. And interesting to see, what one man saw as good for nothing, Solomon, with some uh, insight, some ability to kind of maybe see things that Hiram couldn't, uh, he said, okay, well, if you don't want them, fine, I'll just take them back from you, and what you see as good for nothing, I see potential in. Uh, and Solomon was able to take what one person saw as good for nothing, a waste and worthless. And it says Solomon was able to take those cities that Hiram had probably given back to Solomon, saying, I'm not even interested, take them back. And it says Solomon built them, and he actually made them settlements, productive settlements for the children of Israel. And just kind of goes to show you something about Solomon. He was able to, as a king and as a ruler, take that which from one perspective was good for nothing, and actually make something very good out of it, something very profitable, something valuable and beneficial. And in that way, he kind of reminds me of really what one greater than Solomon, Jesus does with our lives. Uh, Jesus is able to take our lives and really, if we were to be honest, I'm sure each one of us, maybe at some point, people looked at our lives because of the condition they were in or maybe who we were or maybe mistakes that we made. We kind of trashed our lives or made a mess of things and maybe even our own perspective of our life was, you know, my life's about good for nothing now. Or maybe others would look at our lives and say, you know, that guy's life, that gal's life it's pretty much good for nothing. It's just been tarnished and put through the fire and wasted and fractured. And yet Jesus takes what is viewed as good for nothing and he's able to build and to invest into and to work upon. And through his rulership and his investment into our lives, he's actually to make something good out of it. Something productive, something worthwhile that can be a settled, fruitful existence, and many of our lives have that very testimony, and many of our lives can have that testimony, even if it seems like your life is good for nothing to you or to someone else, not if Jesus is ruling over it. Now that Jesus begins to invest into it, Solomon here shows this great strategic, you know, insight that he had and ability to see potential in something that others couldn't when he got his hands on it. Verse 3 tells us Solomon also went to Hamath Zobah and seized it, and that seems to be really probably one of the only military Endeavors that we see Solomon engage in. Unlike his father, he wasn't a man of war. He was a man of peace. He was a man of construction and expansion. But here he did go and seize this one particular location. Verse 4 says he also built Tadmor, and that was way up northeast of Damascus, so quite a ways north and east in the wilderness and all the storage cities which he built in Hamath. Take notice of the continual references to built. Verse 5, he built upper Beth Haran and lower Beth Haran. And those areas were west of the area of Jerusalem, fortified cities with walls and gates and bars. That is, he reinforced those areas militarily so they couldn't be taken over. Also, verse 6, Baaloth and all the storage cities that Solomon had and all the chariot cities and the cities of the Calvaries and all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, up north in Lebanon outside of the area of Israel and in all the land of his dominion. And if you look at the different territories referenced under Solomon's reign, it was pretty expansive, uh, not just to the area that we know today as geographic Israel, but as far north as, as Lebanon, up into the area of Syria and Damascus, down south through the area, uh, close to the uh, area of Egypt and the borders down south. I mean, quite an expensive te- uh, expansive territory. Solomon, you can see, he was very much into building. Uh, he was into building projects he had lots of wealth behind him and what he was doing in his kingdom and he was a definite uh, type of individual who was into building and expanding things and here we see him building lots of different territories uh, during the time of his reign verse 7 says and all the people who were left of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites who were not of Israel, that is, these foreign nations that were kind of lodged, remember, in the land of Palestine when God first gave to them that territory after wandering in the wilderness. These were different uh, tribal people uh, that were in these areas, these different groups, the Canaanite-type people. And it says, that is, verse 8, their descendants who were left in the land after them who the children of Israel did not destroy, From these Solomon raised up for slavery, as it is to this day. So among those who were remaining, notice it tells us verse 7 and 8, it were those, it says, from these territories and these people groups who we know were very pagan, Uh, They were very immoral, their practices, I mean, child sacrifice, tremendous sexual immorality, and just, I mean, the things that these people were in, you can study historically, the Canaanite and the Hittite people uh, were into very vile practices. And so because of that, Deuteronomy chapter 7, one place of many, tells us that God told the people that when when they went into the land, that they were to drive out these people completely. Remember, and God instructed them, do not leave any of them in the land. And God said predominantly because one, Israel was being used by God to bring judicial uh, punishment upon these people for their vile practices. But more than that, God said, if you leave them in the land, they will turn your hearts away from me. They'll end up being a snag to you. They'll end up introducing idolatry and their immoral practices, and they will draw you down spiritually and morally. Well, unfortunately, as we read here in other places, verse 7 says that some of those people were left of those individual tribes who were not of Israel, and it says the children of Israel did not destroy them. So Solomon, recognizing the threat that they were, says he put them to forced labor. He wouldn't make the Israelites forced labor, but he made them sort of almost a a slave force that he used for his building projects and so forth uh, the unfortunate thing is you know Solomon here again as many leaders made the same mistake indicates that he thought somehow that he could compromise on what God wanted and somehow well I'll just keep it under control I'll make these my forced labor I won't let them control me I'll just control them and let me just say that never works It never works when God says to us, look, I want you to eradicate this from your life, this sin, this thing that could draw you down spiritually, drag you down morally. I want you to just get it out of your life, rid it, remove yourself from it, so that way you have no opportunity to indulge the flesh in that particular area. And sometimes, for whatever reason, we think, no, 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 I can control that. I'll just control it. I'll just keep it in check. It won't take control of me. I'll just control it. And that never works in our lives. It may work for a season. We think that we can control something, but if we leave its presence in our life, it just creates an opportunity for the indulgence of the flesh. In the New Testament, it tells us the same thing. When Paul writes to the Romans, he says that we're to make no provision for the flesh. And that's the idea here. Leaving these people made a provision for the flesh, for the carnal nature. And the same way for you and I as New Testament Christians, we don't want to leave an opportunity make a provision for the flesh. We make a provision for the flesh, ultimately we are going to find ourselves indulging at some point and on some occasion because of the weakness of our own flesh when we're exposed to temptation. Verse 9 says, But Solomon, notice, did not make the children of Israel servants, For his work. Instead, some were men of war, captains of his officers and captains of his chariots and of his cavalry, and others became chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. So he gave them designated jobs and different ways to serve within his kingdom. Verse 11 says Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David. To the house he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Now, here we start to see very clearly, in the midst of the prosperity of Solomon's reign, as his kingdom is expanding, and we're going to see even more than this the incredible extravagance, the luxury the wealth and opulence that existed in Solomon's life personally, as well as in the reign of his rulership as the king over Israel in his time, here we begin to see that in the midst of that prosperity and success and blessing that Solomon begins to gradually begin to compromise, which ultimately leads him down a very, very unhealthy road. Solomon is a perfect example in the word of God of someone who started out really well, Started out with a heart inclined towards the Lord, trying to serve God, being obedient to God, but yet he didn't finish very well. He got very off track. And again, just this reminder to us again in the Word of God, because both things can happen. Sometimes people may not start out too well. Maybe early on in life, or maybe in a season of their life, they really live like a rebel and wild, or they made some really poor choices and really made a mess of their lives, but God's a God of redemption. And just like you can start a race and be doing really bad at the start of the race, maybe you have a bad start or you're kind of running in the back of the pack, it doesn't matter how you start the race. What matters is how you finish the race, right? That's what matters in the end. And you can start bad and finish really well. And that's a good thing. There are a lot of great examples in the Word of God of people who started out pretty bad, but they finished well. Paul the Apostle and plenty of other individuals we have who didn't have the best start, but they finished really well. And that's a good thing to do. But there are also examples in the Bible, Solomon is one of the greatest of it, who started out well, but didn't finish well didn't stay on track and turned away from God and one of the ways he turned away from God first kings 11 tells us is that his love for many different foreign women and foreign in the sense that they didn't serve Yahweh God it wasn't their nationality it was their spiritual practices that they turned his heart away from God into idolatry and other practices And because of this, we begin to see Solomon making these compromises. At this point, it's starting to happen as the prosperity is developing. Here we read of one of many, many marriages that Solomon had. The Bible tells us in its record that actually Solomon had, hard as it is to kind of grasp mentally, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Again, concubines referencing just, you know, sexual, uh, partners. The idea is just women who were a mistress for nothing other. They didn't have the rights of a wife or, uh, their children didn't have legitimate, uh, you know, r- you know, claim to the throne. They were just women that he had in sort of a harem. Uh, This was an individual who had many, many women and a great weakness in this area, could not regulate his passions, and here we see one of probably many of his marriages, which predominantly were just political alliances, and I'm not saying they all were, but it was a very common thing to make marriages that a lot of times were political alliances between nations. And many times they would make an alliance. A son of one kingdom and a daughter of another kingdom uh, would be married together or a king would marry a princess from another kingdom. And the idea was to make an alliance to minimize them threatening or attacking one another, to make arrangements so they would kind of support one another or have trade affairs, work more easily to be more prosperous and cooperative in their interactions. And Solomon here, it says, took as one of his wives the daughter of Pharaoh. From Egypt. But it's very obvious here that this daughter of Pharaoh from Egypt, that even Solomon recognized that she had no interest in serving Yahweh God. And apparently she took her gods and her idols from Egypt and the worship practices of pagan idolatry from Egypt. And she kept those things and did not serve the one true God of Israel, which Solomon was serving. So this was an unequally yoked marriage spiritually. And Solomon acknowledges that in his very words by saying, my wife, who he built a house for, he built a separate house for her because he said she shouldn't dwell in the house of King David because the places where the ark of the Lord, the presence of God have come, he said, are holy. And she would defile that, he's saying. So therefore... I'm going to build her her own separate residence over here because she'll defile the things of God. She's not serving the purposes of God and she'll just defile and dishonor God. So I'm going to kind of have her live in this residence over here. And already you can see Solomon is kind of having this, you know, divided heart thing going on. He wants to serve God himself, he understands reverence for the things of God, but he also wants to have this other area with this wife and who knows how many other wives where that's an area where I'm not going to allow God to have a part into my life. This relationship with this woman over here, when I want to be pagan, I'm going to go compromise over there, but then I'll come back and I'll worship God in the house of God, and he's kind of compartmentalizing his life and having a divided heart spiritually. And he's beginning to tolerate this in his life. And whenever we begin to do this and have a divided heart and compartmentalize our life and kind of say, well, I'm going to just kind of isolate God from this particular area of my life. I'll let God be involved in this part of my life and this part of my life and this part of my life. But this thing over here, I don't really want God involved in that part over there. That's kind of my dark area. I kind of want to do my dark thing over there. And so I'm not going to let God and his light and his presence be a part of that because I know God wouldn't be pleased with that. And we start to create these little spaces in our lives where we kind of want to keep God out of. And let me tell you something. If there's ever any area of our lives we're trying to keep God out of, that's bad. The real clear indication, something's going wrong. If God's presence is not welcome there, there's things going on that shouldn't be going on there. So whether it be a relationship or some habit or practice or routine or just some area of our life, many different areas of our lives, we don't ever want to start to do that. And Solomon here is already going down this path. He makes a separate palace just for her over here because he knows the things she's doing are displeasing to God in his presence where the ark and the temple were. And verse 12 says, Then Solomon offered, notice, in the midst of all these things, he's still offering burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar and a Lord which he had built before the vestibule. So he's still going through the practices uh, of regular worship while he's got these other things going on in other areas. According to the daily rate, offering according to the commandment, it says, of Moses for the Sabbaths and the new moons, those were the monthly observances, and the three appointed yearly feasts. These were the three mandatory feasts. There were others, but these were three mandatory feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a reference to also often called Passover, the Feast of Weeks or or Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And according to the order of David, his father, he appointed... The divisions of the priests for their service, the Levites for their duties to praise and serve before the priests. We've seen much of this in our prior chapters, just referencing it again. As the duty, it says, of each day required, and the gatekeepers by their divisions at each gate, for so David the man of God had commanded. And they did not depart from the command of the king to the priests and the Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasury. So again, as the Bible gives us record of this and just the Holy Spirit recording these things, I do love the statement that's given there in the midst of verse 14 that it says as they were, you know, appointing these different individuals for their responsibilities and their ministries and their service to keep the house of God and the worship system operating so God was honored and the people were being built up spiritually. Verse 14 where it says, as the duty of each day Required As the duty of each day required. You know, there is an aspect to our spiritual life, to our worship life, where just like there are, are, are let's say, duties each day that are required to maintain a household, right? <laughs> I hope anyway, with washing your dishes, you know, things like that. There's kind of just mundane things, right? There are just aspects of the duty of each day that's required to keep a house functioning, a family operating. Well, to the same degree that there are certain elements of our spiritual life that do involve the same. There's a daily aspect to maintaining the spiritual life, the duty that each day requires, the time in prayer the time in the Word of God, the time to slow down and give some attention to the Lord. There is an element of of being disciplined and having some structure and some level of commitment and willing to be diligent about certain things. You know, it's truly amazing sometimes how certain believers, and of course, you know, from a pastoral perspective, you end up counseling people and talking to people and when kind of their bottom drops out or there's issues in a marriage or problems in somebody's personal life, and you would be... I shouldn't say perhaps surprised, but uh, how often you find in the midst of that as you ask questions, well, look, are you, are you kind of doing what the duty of each day requires to walk with Jesus? Are you reading your Bible? Well, do, do you spend a little, do you pray every day? Well, are, are you going to church consistently? Well, I mean, and, and I don't understand why my world fell apart. I don't understand why I'm in sin or why I'm struggling. Well, look, there's a part of the maintenance of the spiritual life that keeps us walking in the Spirit, that helps us to continue to live in a worshipful, proper manner before the Lord. And as Christians, it's wise that we take note of that, even to maintain the temple. There was a duty that each day required. And so vital that we take that into consideration in the way that we seek to stay healthy in our worship life, in our spiritual life. They did not depart from the king's command. They kept obeying the rulership of the king and we want to keep obeying the commands and the rulership of our king, Jesus. Verse 16 says, Now all the work of Solomon was well ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord, that is from the first day they began, until it was finished So the house of the Lord, again, we're told, was completed. I love the way verse 16 describes the whole process from the foundation or start of the temple project until the completion and the end of the temple project being finished. It says the work, it says God's work was well-ordered. I like that statement. Well-ordered. A lot of times people have this perspective that to be spiritual means there can be no order. Oh, if you want to be orderly, that's not spiritual. To be spiritual, you got to be just spontaneous and whatever. And look, I think that what I read in the Bible, I see very clearly that God is a God of order. God is a God who honors doing things in an orderly way. You read the Old Testament, the worship life. There was an order to everything that they did. You read in the New Testament, even in the book of Revelation, the description of the heavenly realm, and there's something orderly even about what's going on in heaven. When this group says this, or they fall down on their faces, then all the rest do this, and they all say this together. There's an order to the worship life and the spiritual life. Things are well-ordered. They're not chaotic. They're not spastic. They're not out of control and distracting. There's something about order that God delights in it blesses God and God blesses a well-ordered spiritual life God orders ministry that's well-ordered that has structure to it that has continuity to it now within order can there be variation? yes, absolutely I can tell you this that's one of the reasons why purposely we still even at this point keep a variation between our Sunday morning worship service and our Wednesday night service because I like the fact that there's some variation there There's a general sense of order to what happens at both meetings, but I like even between our worship meeting Sunday and our worship meeting Wednesday that there's some variation to how we go about things. Kind of keeps the mundane out of it. Kind of allows things to, again, as as we go towards the end of our worship time after we end our Bible study and we do the majority of our worship and so forth and singing at the end of the worship gathering rather than the beginning like we do on a Sunday morning, There's a part of that as well, too, where, you know, purposely, I try as much as possible not to overly structure or plan kind of where things are. going. I just prefer to just kind of, we can keep it orderly, but just let the Lord bring some variation. There's a general sense of order. But yet, you can still be led of the Spirit within that and have variation and variety, which I think keeps things alive and sensitive to the Spirit. We don't want to over regulate something. You know, structure is something that keeps things uh, kind of in an in a orderly way, but it's something that doesn't have to strangle the life and quench the Spirit of God. And so here, it was well-ordered. Again, this was a God-ordained thing that was happening, but yet it was well-ordered through the whole process of it. And Solomon, verse 17 and 18, tells us also went to ezion geber and Elath on the seacoast in the land of Edom. Now, that indicates he went very far south. He went all the way down Past where Israel is, down to the very bottom southern part of Edom, around the area of the Gulf of Aquabaz, where this is, which then goes into the area of the the Red Sea and ultimately out to the Arabian Sea there and It says Hiram sent him ships by the hand of the servants and the servants who knew the sea, and they went with the servants of Solomon to ophir and we don 't know exactly where that is, only speculation. But they traveled to those locations, interesting, on ships together, it says, and they acquired 450 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. So now there are these ventures taking place under Solomon's reign where together in partnership with other nations, uh, they're actually establishing a a pretty uh, substantial navy and merchant ships going out, we'll see on these expeditions, to acquire more gold. For Solomon, which will drastically multiply under Solomon's reign, which again was another area, whether it was multiplying wives, now multiplying gold, that Solomon is feeling entitled and he's beginning to violate the specific commands, Deuteronomy 17, of what kings were not supposed to do, multiply gold and horses and wives and women to themselves. But Solomon here is beginning to make concessions and we see this starting to happen. Chapter 9 tells us, now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, it says she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions, having a very great retinue, that is a great caravan, with camels, and she bore spices and gold in abundance and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So at this point, Solomon's fame, notice, it becomes international, because he now has this visitation, this great caravan, from the queen it says of the area of sheba now the area of sheba ancient sheba is probably somewhere believed to be around the area of yemen uh, which was pretty far south if you're familiar with where saudi arabia is currently all the way down to the very south yemen is at the bottom of the arabian peninsula and around the area of, of right across from Ethiopia. So most believe that this area she came from, Sheba, was somewhere around the Yemen or Ethiopia area. Now, that would indicate, as she comes from there, it says, because of the fame and all the glory she heard about Solomon, she came to visit him there in Jerusalem. That means that she traveled upwards to around 1,300 maybe plus miles by camel, not by jet by camel through hot climates how long does it take to travel with a caravan on camel or horseback 1300 miles but that's how far she came how much cost effort time energy and endeavor she was to put into seeking out Solomon now to see him, to spend time with him. Jesus specifically references this. You might want to put in your notes or make a mental note. Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. Let me read you Jesus' words. It says, Jesus said, Matthew twelve forty-two: the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. In other words, Jesus held up the queen of Sheba in this account we're reading about here in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. He, he held up the queen of Sheba as a great example of a seeker, of one who came to seek out the wisdom and to get to know Solomon on a deeper level because of all that she heard about him. And Jesus holds her forth and he says, the queen of the south is going to rise up and condemn this generation. She came from the ends of the earth made all of that cost and sacrifice personally to come and seek out King Solomon. And he said, and one greater than Solomon is right here in front of you. And you have very little interest in seeking him out or getting to know him or learning things about him. And, and he holds her up as this example that she would journey so far. And he says, you know, her example condemns all those who are so willing to, you know, hardly give any level of sacrifice. You know, it's a great conviction, honestly, to all of us that she would go through so much to seek out and to get to know Solomon and spend time with Solomon. And yet, honestly, think of how minimal amount of cost, personally, many of us at times are willing to expend to seek Jesus, to spend time with the Lord. You know, she traveled 1,300 miles all the way on Camelback and there are people who, you know, well, I just, well, I'm I'm tired. I just I'm not I can't we won't drive 13 miles. We won't spend 13 minutes to drive to church. You know, we 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 won't, you know, make some personal sacrifice to give up something. I mean, what did she have to give up to make that kind of a sacrifice to go seek? And and we're seeking Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And here she makes this great endeavor, says, to go visit, comes with this great caravan. And, and again, the example, she says, when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was on her heart. She just had all these things in her mind and, and questions and things that were on her heart and she heard about his great wisdom and that he was this magnificent king. So she comes and she just spends time with him, communes with him and speaks with him about all that was on her heart. Again, I hope you see the many beautiful parallels in the great typology even of this. Of, as again, Jesus used this example using himself as a picture there saying hey you'll do this for the, she'll do that for the king of Solomon but people won't do this for me as the king of kings how wonderful that you and I can come and seek Jesus and we can speak to him right about what's on our heart and you may not be able to pour out your heart like that to anybody else but you can come and spend time with Jesus and speak to Jesus about all that's in your heart and he'll listen whatever's going on in your heart And you don't have to worry about how it sounds or clean it up or polish it up or try and make yourselves. You can just pour out your heart to the Lord and just tell Him whatever's on your heart and He's a great listener. And He's always available. He's always available as we seek Him out. Verse 2 says, And Solomon answered, All her questions. There was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. So again, there was nothing that she brought to Solomon. She brought probably complex questions about politics and ruling a nation and we're also told that Solomon had great wisdom he understood things about botany and about animals and all these things the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes he was so brilliant and filled with the wisdom of God so she's asking all these difficult complex questions and nothing stumped him he never said mmm, that's a I don't know I don't have I don't have any reasoning for that There was nothing that she spoke to him about that was too complex or difficult for him to handle and to help her reason out and give her explanation and insight and understanding about. And look, if that's true of Solomon, how much true is that of one much greater than Solomon? Of Jesus, who the Bible says is the wonderful counselor, who is the all-wise God. There's nothing that we can talk to the Lord about and we, sometimes we think, well, I want to pour out my heart to the Lord, but my situation, I mean, it's really difficult. And, and I'm not minimizing that it may be complicated. Maybe it's messy, fractured, and maybe it is a very difficult, complex thing for a human being. But it's not for Jesus. There's never a time you're going to come to Jesus and go, mm, that's a... I, you know what? That, you got to give me a little time on that. That's kind of difficult. I've never seen that before in human history. Right? That, that, Jesus is very experienced. He's been helping mankind from the Garden of Eden. I assure you, your situation is not going to stump Jesus. It's not too difficult for him. It's not something he can't handle. Give you answers, clarity, direction, wisdom how to navigate. Give you insight and understanding as you pray and seek his face and let him speak to you. He can explain things and give you wisdom above and beyond what's natural. He can give supernatural wisdom. He can give insight and understanding. Verse 3 says, And when the queen of Sheba had then seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and their apparel, and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. The idea is it took her breath away. As she saw all of the glory of King Solomon and his reign and his kingdom, his servants, and how things functioned, how things operated, the, the the table that he had spread before his servants to take care of them and how he provided for them, the entryway, the glorious entryway he had into his house, how people entered into his house. She saw all these things about his kingdom and it literally took her breath away. It, it just totally amazed her. And again, think of how amazing it is when you and I get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And when we see with our eyes clearly, the Bible says, now we see dimly, then we shall see face to face. Now we we, we see things in part, but then we shall know things fully. And even now, I mean, you know, as you become a Christian, the more you walk with the Lord and you begin to see how the kingdom of God operates and, and, and what the Lord does and the way that, you know, we're able to serve and the privilege of that and to, to be able to come to the Lord's table and experience his provision, and the table of the Lord and what communion represents and, and how we enter into the kingdom of God by grace and through faith alone and the righteousness that Jesus provides. And, and as we see these things of our king and his kingdom, I don't know about you, but there's been numerous times where it's like the Lord just takes my breath away. And it's just, it's amazing. And we're just amazed and astonished you know, I love that song that used to sing, we used to sing years ago. used to say, amazing love, how can it be that you, a king, would die for me? And again, just the, wow, Lord, this, this, this whole thing of your kingdom, it's just shocking. It's absolutely incredible, and it should blow our minds when we really begin to see and understand. Verse 5 says, and then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their word until, she says, I came and saw with my own eyes. She said, I had to see it for myself. And indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You exceed the fame which I heard. So she says, look, I heard a lot about you, King Solomon, of your fame and your glory and your wisdom and how you were this incredible king. And she says, honestly, she says, I didn't completely believe it all. I had to come see it for myself. And she says, and now that I've seen it for myself, she says, not the half of it. was Your fame is greater than I ever could have envisioned and certainly greater than even anybody could explain. It's way greater, way, way greater. And in this way, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba becomes a picture again of, honestly, as believers, we try and tell other people, listen, let me tell you about Jesus let me tell you about my King Jesus and tell you things about Him and what He's like and we try and express to people, right? Because and, and, we want to glorify the Lord. We want to bring fame and honor to Jesus. So we try and tell people about how great the Lord is and what He's like and what He's done for us and, and people listen. But honestly, until they see it for themselves, right? They have to see it for themselves. But once they see it for themselves, I know once I saw it for myself, having known a few Christians who were witnessing to me, once I saw it for myself, I was like, whoa, this is way better even than what you were describing. This is incredible what it is to know Jesus and to understand and see these things for myself. Not the half of it it could even be articulated with human words. And let me say this, beyond just seeing it for ourselves, in the sense of getting to know Jesus for ourselves and have a relationship with him, And that direct experience, it doesn't just exceed what we envision of Jesus as a relationship. But I tell you, I read these verses and I think what a fitting description of what it's going to be like when we enter into the kingdom of God, when we enter into the presence of the Lord and we make that journey and we are face to face with Jesus. This is what the experience I believe is going to be like in heaven. We're going to say, you know what, (laughs) Lord, I I heard things about heaven. I read about it in your book, Lord. You did give us some explanation in the book of Revelation there, Lord. The things that I read about heaven, the things I've heard about heaven, Lord, this, whoa! Lord, this totally exceeds my expectations. I assure you, if there is one thing that is not going to happen when you enter into heaven, is you are not going to be disappointed. Right, That may happen if you go to some amusement park, you go see a movie somebody told you about, you go to a restaurant and you go, oh, I don't know. That's not going to happen when you go to heaven. When you get to heaven, you are going to be so blown away when you see Jesus face to face in the glory of the kingdom of God and the eternal dimension that you are going to go, whoa. This is not even half of this was told to me. It's going to just be astonishing. It's going to be overwhelming. No wonder we're going to be on our faces worshiping forever and ever and ever and ever because we're going to just keep having our minds blown continually as we see more and more of the exceeding greatness. The Bible tells us in, uh, to the writer of uh, the Corinthians, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We have no idea. We are going to be blown away, and she's just blown away. You exceed, she says, even everything that I heard. Happy are your men, she says, and happy are your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. In other words, she's now compelled to worship. Blessed be the Lord your God, she says, who delighted in you, sitting you on his throne to be king for the lord your god because your god has loved israel to establish them forever and ever he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness so she's compelled to worship as she sees king solomon as she sees the king Her response is is to be inclined to worship, to begin to praise. And again, that will be our uh, natural response as we see more and more of the Lord. Verse 9, it says, And she gave gave the king, Solomon, 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, and precious stones, that there were never any spices such as those the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. So she lavishes now extravagant gifts upon Solomon. As she wants to honor him, she's giving gifts to him. She wants to to bless him. And so she's doing that which she can to honor him by giving gifts unto him as the king. Also the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon, verse 10, who brought gold from Ophir, brought algam wood, a very hard wood, we're told. We don't know exactly what it's like. And precious stones to King Solomon. And the king made walkways of algam wood. So kind of the first hardwood floors, if you would walkways made of algam wood. He invented hardwood for the house of the Lord God and for the king's house. Also, he used that wood to make harps and stringed instruments for the singers. And there were none such as these seen before in the land of Judah. Now, King Solomon, verse 12, gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked, much more than she had brought to the king. And so she returned and went to her own country, she and her servants. So notice Solomon, such a glorious king, he wouldn't let himself be outgiven. When she lavished all this gold and, you know, all these spices and all these things, she was given this great gift to him in great abundance. It says nobody had ever given a gift to Solomon like that before. And then it says that King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked more than she brought to him. You know, again, just a a picture of how, you know, we can never outgive the Lord the generosity of Jesus as our king his kindness the gifts the blessings that he bestows upon us even as we try and give to the lord we receive so much back we can never outgive the lord he's so much more kind and gracious to us and giving again beautiful he gave her it says all she desired the bible says us delight yourself in the lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart What she asked, the Bible says, ask, seek, find, knock. And as we do that, the Lord rewards and he gives to us at times what we ask of him and honors and even gives us graciously sometimes the very desires within our hearts if it's in line with his will. Verse 13 says, the weight of the gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Now, yes, that number should make you cringe. 666 talents. That just goes to show you it doesn't seem like he's on the right track, if nothing else. We know 666 becomes the sign of the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation. But here, we're beginning now to look at in these last verses of the chapter, really just the extravagance of Solomon's wealth now, multiplying gold. He's got all these people bringing him revenue and gold from their expeditions. And it says, the weight of gold that came to him yearly... 666 talents, that's about 25 tons, and according to the current calculations of gold, that's probably close to, if not over, a billion dollars just in gold that he was receiving yearly. Besides, look at verse 14, that's a key word, besides what the traveling merchants and then the traders brought to him, and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the countries around him brought gold and silver, to Solomon and King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold 600 shekels of hammered gold went into each shield and he also made 300 shields of hammered gold 300 shekels of gold went to each of those shields that were smaller shields the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon which seemed to be kind of like a building that was his armory so here he's making gold shields big ones and small ones again Gold shields would be very, honestly, useless from a military perspective because gold is a soft metal. So these were just ornamental. These were just ornamental golden shields in his armory to decorate his army, and he has the gold that he's able to make decorative shields out of that. Again, the amount here probably upwards to the millions if you were to calculate the amount it would cost. shows you the wealth that he had. Verse 17, look at this. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory that's pretty impressive well but then he also overlaid it with pure gold now you know you have way too much money when you're doing that you have an ivory throne and you go well, yeah i mean i know it's ivory but throw some gold on top of that why don't you an ivory throne And he overlays it with pure gold the throne has six steps with a footstool of gold which were fastened to the throne. There were armrests on either side of the seat and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this, the Bible says, had been made for any other kingdom. So again, just he's wanting to show his wealth, his extravagance in very opulent ways that people would see the luxury. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels, verse 20, were a course of gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold, not one was silver. For this, that is silver, was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. The idea is, is in his mind, a silver cup would be like you know, a, a, a red party cup, a plastic cup. Don't give me a Dixie cup. I just, I don't want that. Just get that out of here. I want gold vessels. Only pure, silver was like a paper cup in his mind. For the king's ships, verse twenty-one went to Tarsus with the servants of Hiram, and once every three years, the merchant ships would come back from their expeditions, bringing gold and silver and ivory and monkeys, or your translation, some may say peacocks. Again, this wasn't animals being brought back for their meat and their food; these were for entertainment. Monkeys and apes and peacocks these were just these were for sheer entertainment purposes so that he could party and have kind of his own personal zoo just for personal enjoyment and entertainment so King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom notice again God reminds us which God had put in his heart That great wisdom that he had and why he became the man he did, it all began because God supernaturally did something in his life. But Solomon, unfortunately, got lost in the midst of that. And all of the wealth and the prosperity and the gold and the power began to make him feel he was entitled. And he then began to make compromises and concessions morally and spiritually, which led to Solomon's downfall as a man. And each, it says, man brought his present, articles of silver and gold and garments and armor, Spices, horses, mules at the set rate year by year. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses. There's that third compromise. Now he's multiplying horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king of Jerusalem. So he reigned over all the kings from the river, that is the Euphrates, up north in the area of Iraq to the land of the Philistines, as far down to the border of Egypt in the south, and the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And if you've ever been to Israel, the land of many rocks and stones, it shows you how extravagant even silver was. And cedars, as abundant as the sycamores in the lowland. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt and all the lands and the rest of the acts of Solomon first and last are then written in the book of Nathan the prophet in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and in the visions of Ido the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem and over all Israel 40 years and then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. So Solomon starts out really well, but then God's blessing, prosperity, success. And look, there's nothing wrong with blessing and prosperity and success. Let's not demonize that there's something wrong for somebody to succeed or be blessed or to be prospered. The problem is, It's the love of those things. It's when those things become an idol and something in our life that becomes a stumbling block where we begin to feel entitled that we start to make compromises and concessions that can lead us down wrong roads. And again, Deuteronomy 17 is told very clearly that the kings were not to multiply gold and silver, they were not to multiply to themselves wives and women, and they were not to multiply to themselves horses from other lands which were representative of a military power. And God said, because these things will turn your heart away from dependence upon me. And Solomon begins to do all of those things which leads his heart away from God in a spiritual walk. It's interesting, in that same section, Deuteronomy 17, God says, tell the kings to write their own handwritten copy of the word of God, the law of the Lord, so that they would be very well acquainted with it. The idea is if Solomon would have perhaps kept himself more familiar with and in contact with the word of God he potentially may not have shifted in the spiritual walk and walked in a way away from the Lord that he should have never been you want to know one of the safest things you can do in your spiritual life to keep yourself from compromise and carnality and getting into places where you shouldn't be and your heart drifting away from the Lord keep your face in this book you keep your face in this book and you keep your heart exposed to the Word of God personally in your reading and in the hearing of God's Word when His people come together, whatever the cost involves. You're not traveling to the under end of the earth like the Queen of Sheba. So don't use petty excuses. And I'm preaching to the choir because you're here on a midweek service, which is a unique thing for the greater majority of the body of Christ. So that's commendable. But you stay in the Word of God. Personally, you stay exposed to the Word of God and teaching and Bible studies, and church gatherings, and I tell you, it will be one of the greatest assets to keep you from compromising and walking away from the Lord. Let's stand together. Let's pray.